my ladies, gentles, in you come, and those who are neither, or some, come hither all such tales to hear of misrule, magic, flight, and fear, of things that unleash pandemonium, and heroes to defend us from them, and for those who thusly need inform me, in the show notes you'll find content warnings. So cautioned, audience, come with me to the Pantaloon Society. Episode 12, Beneath the Society, Part 2 There are moments, dear audience, upon which the wheels of fate turn. Moments where people stand on the precipice between life and death. And during such moments, a little supernatural aid can be particularly helpful. Beneath the streets of London, in a reeking sewer, our weary heroes have passed into one of those moments. And it is Jen who finds herself feeling a flash of unease of sudden discomfort. They step aside to turn and check behind them, moving just enough that the knife plunging towards their back instead flashes through empty air. Jen and Joe both started back as the shape moved past them, his momentum causing him to overshoot. Cursing, he carried on off into the darkness. Porca miseria! Joe staggered and nearly fell off the edge of the sewer into the murky liquid below, but caught himself just in time. Who's there?! He's gone. We've got to get out of here. What's the point, though, when I just use the compass to follow us? I know, but we'll have to watch each other's back. I think he waited until we stopped and went off guard. Maybe he prefers sneaker sacks? He won't want to try and take us both in the open. Yeah, looks like it. Come on, let's keep moving. The dark shape swarmed his breath again in Italian. The purple-haired one had sensed him somehow and alerted the man. Disappointing. He was sick of this damp, stinking tunnel and sick of trailing through the darkness. Darkness was usually his friend, an old comrade he'd served beside in many complicated operations. But this long, tight tunnel was bad terrain for the work he wanted to do. Well, there were plenty of shadowy corners back in the Pantaloon Society, and they would serve his purpose. And his quarry must be beginning to tire by now. They would be exhausted by the time they returned to their den. He sheathed his knife again and set off. The others had been easier, he thought. The compass found them for him, and then it was simply a matter of using his training. Following them home, watching their movements, waiting for his chance once they were alone. The homeless one, he had been particularly easy. He had only had to wait for the boy to go somewhere where nobody would see him work. Sophia, though, there his resolve had failed him. He could not kill her. He could not raise a hand against his own daughter. But perhaps even there God's plan was working, because looking for her had led him to the pantaloons. And from there, things had become even easier. 
Somehow, even without the compass, they kept stumbling across other victims for him. It had been a risk to follow them all the way to Belgium. Luckily, he had built up a great many air miles and was able to purchase a ticket quickly. He had almost lost them in the airport, but it had been worth it. Another one of the accursed found and destroyed. After the Belgian girl, the compass led him again and again to the pantaloons, pointing without fail at the smaller one, the little one with purple hair, the one they called Jen. There was a satisfying poetic irony about it, using their own devil magic against them, to find them and end them. He had been staking out the society premises any evening he was not working, watching them go in and out. The lock on the door was old-fashioned and easy to pick. He had waited until Veronica had left, and then had explored the place thoroughly, looking for the best places to wait. Unfortunately, she had spotted him watching her. Fortunately, it was just before she was about to reveal who he was. Divine providence again. He played with the compass, turning it idly over and over in his fingers as he walked steadily onwards, loping with long strides. He remembered his sister showing it to him excitedly, sharing her secrets with him like she always did. How to reach for the needle with your mind, charge it, magnetise it with your desire to find what you were looking for. He lifted it to his lips and blew on it gently. The needle quivered and then pointed straight ahead down the sewer tunnel. They had not reached the end yet, then. He picked up the pace. They had told each other everything right from when they were little, him and his sister. There was only a year between them, but he was the older one, so he was protective of her. That had never really gone away, all the years of their life. The doors between their rooms in the family's house in Naples were never closed, and sometimes they slept curled around each other, especially when their father was away on set in some action film. They played together in the streets and parks of that ancient city. Sometimes their mother and aunt took them to castles, or catacombs, or museums, or to Pompeii and Herculaneum. Their parents were busy people, celebrated artists, but they somehow still found time to be with their children. They had been a happy family. When Angela's curse first manifested itself, that was when the rot set in. The two of them had been playing outside the house, he with his toy cars, on the terrace, and she in the garden. It was a hot day, heavy with the promise of rain, and he had gone inside to get a drink. As he turned off the tap, he heard a scream. He dropped his cup in the sink and ran outside, to find Angela on the floor crying her eyes out and holding an injured wrist, and one of his toy cars in tiny red and black pieces on the floor. His sister looked up at him and started apologising over and over. Through her tears, she told him she had tripped over the car and screamed at it angrily, and somehow it had shattered completely. She hadn't meant to. She was so very sorry. He hugged her and told her it was all right. He knew she didn't mean to break his toy, but he knew then something was very wrong with his sister. She didn't speak to anyone at all for several weeks. When he asked what was wrong, she wrote notes to him. She was afraid she would break something, she said. Her parents thought it was some children's game they were playing, and indulgently read her notes. Eventually, she accidentally spoke, and when nothing was destroyed, realised it was safe to talk again. But she spoke softly from then on, as if afraid to harm someone with her voice. She had a bird-like and fluttery soprano. They both did, but she stopped singing too, much to his mother's sadness. Instead, she focused on her dance lessons, poured all her focus and emotion into it, so their mother was more than happy to encourage that. He watched her dance as a school performance, and even as a child found her grace spellbinding. Her voice was dangerous, she told him, but her dancing only brought joy, and with it, 
she could express all her emotions with her body. He agreed it was safer for her to dance than to sing. It was a secret accord between them. It lessened, perhaps a little, his unspoken jealousy, that his sister had been given this power and he had not. It was easier to think of the magic of her voice as something dangerous, something to be feared and hidden. Her dancing went from strength to strength. She auditioned for the Royal Ballet in London and secured the role of Sleeping Beauty. She cried on him and their mother before she left and begged them to come and visit her as soon as they could. Without her around, life seemed duller. His voice broke, leaving him with a rich baritone, but to his mother's disappointment when he left school, he chose to do his military service. It was easier to go somewhere new rather than remain in their home, where her room stood empty. His father hugged him proudly, but carefully did not mention his own service in the war. He did not talk about that. His medal awarded for fighting in the failed Italian invasion of Greece remained in its box. He deliberately chose not to remain in Campania. Instead, he signed up with the Alpine Paratrooper Regiment. They specialised in mountain combat, and he underwent gruelling training in climbing, skiing, and surviving in hostile terrain. He was diligent, loyal, intelligent, and could project a commanding tone, so he rose quickly in the ranks. Neapolitans had a reputation for being dangerous people, and he played on it unashamedly. His father had given him a horn-handled campanian knife when he was a boy, and he practised with it regularly. On training manoeuvres, he would disappear into the mountains and scale faces that would have been a challenge for a mountain goat. He was selected for special operations, things he never spoke of to his family. It was the Cold War, and things were more complex than they had been in his father's day. He returned home only occasionally, perhaps even less than he could have, if he were to be honest about it. He would see his family on the television, his father's films, his mother's performances. Angela's ballet career was cut short at its height. She slipped and broke her ankle during a dress rehearsal. It needed reconstruction with metal pins, and she never regained the full range of movement in it. He was away at the time, and when he was able to return home, his mother told him she had decided to remain in London and teach dancing. At the first opportunity, he telephoned, asking to visit her. She seemed uncertain, told him she was very busy with teaching, but in the end, she relented. He was hurt and confused, but understood that she might resent him for staying away himself. Perhaps they had grown apart more than he thought. Despite her initial reticence, she insisted he stay with her. When she came to meet him, she still walked with a slight limp, and her wrist was in a splint as well. But under that weariness, something of the bright and bird-like girl he remembered remained. Her flat in London when she brought him there seemed curiously expensive and well-appointed for a young ballet teacher. He became concerned she was involved in something untoward, crime, or sex work perhaps, and asked gently probing questions. At first she was dismissive, said she had some rich students who paid well, but she had never been good at hiding anything from him. Excitedly, she told him about the Pantaloon Society, a stupid name, and so a clever cover, he admitted grudgingly. She spoke of the work she was doing for them, how she had learned to control her voice now and was using it to protect people. She told him she had seen their ancestors' names in the society records, and there had been others like her before. It was difficult to take it all in. Was she putting herself in danger, he asked. Yes, she said proudly, like him, she said. He had always been her hero, even before he joined the army. Now she could use her power to protect others as well. If she got injured occasionally, she said, gesturing to her wrist, well, that was a risk she was willing to take. Horrified, he begged her to stop, imagining his little sister prey to all sorts of unknown monsters. Perhaps, although he would never have admitted it, he felt those old pangs of jealousy from his childhood. But now, with a tinge of fear both for and of his sister, it was not the response she had looked for. He would never forget the hurt in her eyes, the betrayal, and then the shutting down. She had been expecting him to be her ally, it seemed, for things to be like they always were, the two of them keeping their secrets from everyone else. It seemed he had been right in his first assumption, they had indeed grown apart, 
She said she would think about what he had said, and then returned to smiling brightly and taking him to see ballets and operas in London, changing the subject whenever the conversation veered away from the arts. When he returned to Italy and to his regiment, he was a troubled man. Unsure with whom to discuss the matter, he went to Father Carlo, the regimental chaplain, and in the confessional tried to explain the situation in a manner that would not immediately get him medically discharged. He did not mention his sister's powers, only that she was involved in an occult organisation in London. Satanic panics were regularly in the news at that time. Father Carlo listened to his confession, gave him appropriate penance for any sins, and then emerged from the box and told him in great seriousness that his sister's life was in danger, and he must do whatever he could to draw her away from the occult. He pressed a crucifix into his hands, blessed him and prayed for him, and called him a good brother and righteous man. Encouraged by the priest, he called and wrote to his sister, but she either responded with pleasantries or promises or outright lies. The army sent him on a humanitarian mission for six months, and he was unable to contact her. One day, his commanding officer called him into his office to speak to him. It was clear from his solemn tone that something terrible had happened. His sister had died, the captain said, an accident in London. He would be given compassionate leave to go home for the funeral. He nodded and thanked him. It would not have been an accident, of that he was sure. At the funeral, as he consoled his mother and aunt, a tall and lanky Englishwoman came to pay her respects. She claimed to have been Angela's flatmate in London, returning her things, but he recognised the name, Veronica Harrington, as that of her partner in the society. He kept his face impassive as his aunt insisted she stay with the family. Stay in Angela's room. Each night, he stayed there. He thought of the woman, with only a plaster wall between them. How easy it would be to unlock the adjoining door, slip through, and slide a knife between her ribs as she slept. That was the beginning of those thoughts. But at that point, he could not yet bring himself to kill an unarmed woman in her sleep. He did not return to the army. His national service had been discharged long ago, and he would not risk putting his mother and father through the heartbreak of losing another of their children. But he did keep in touch with Father Carlo, confiding in him his grief about Angela, and his fears about the true reason for her death. The priest wrote back kindly and fervently, speaking of the duty of good men to fight evil. He regretted not giving the priest the truth, but he was still not sure he would have understood. Inspired by the words of the priest, his grief eventually gave way to resolve on a cold and fervent madness. He had failed Angela, been unable to convince her before it was too late, but he would not fail again. He would seek out the agents of the devil and destroy them. He cast about for something to do with his time while he pursued his self-appointed mission, and his mother encouraged him to take up singing again. He had never stopped, having been part of the regimental choir, in their dress uniforms with the alpine caps with the feather in them, singing the songs of the First World War when the mountains were stained with blood. The opera allowed him to be someone else, a tragic hero or doomed villain. He found what joy he could in it and built on his old skills, and with the encouragement and contacts of his proud mother and father, was soon building a career and a reputation for himself. But he never forgot his vendetta, his revenge against those who in his mind had been responsible for Angela's death. Those cursed, as his family was, with evil powers. His singing career took him all over the world. When in London, he tried to find the Pantaloon Society, but back then it was well-staffed and well-hidden. Without any means to find his quarry, it was only by luck that he stumbled across people cursed by darkness. People like Maria Zello. Maria was his second great failure. She was a socialite and a model, a bright young thing, popular in Milan society. When they met at some opera-related social event, he thought her beautiful but frivolous. She complimented his performance as Papageno in The Magic Flute, 
and made some flirtatious joke related to the opera about bird-catching, he vaguely recalled. His interest had been piqued in a way he thought at the time to be entirely natural. He offered to buy her a drink, they talked about fame and families. She joked about dodging the paparazzi and sneaking off to a nightclub with a dangerous man. She would never truly know how dangerous he was to her. They found their way out of the party together. At the door of the expensive Milan hotel, the paparazzi waited. Maria, drunk on champagne, winked and beckoned him to follow her. He felt something he'd only felt once before, when Angela used her voice, a deep and awful sense of wrongness. And then, Maria walked past the photographers, who completely ignored her as if she was invisible. He followed her, and they ignored him too. He should have left then, he knew. It would have been trivial to find some excuse to leave, but his chest had flared up with champagne-fueled fury, and perhaps other baser things. Maria was one of the accursed, and worse still, she was flaunting it in front of him. And there he was without a weapon, except, of course, for his hands. The darkness of a nightclub, however, might offer him an opportunity. Better still if she were to invite him home. If she were to play succubus, then he would be incubus in his turn. The bouncers waved her into the nightclub without a word. They gyrated on the dance floor, and he measured his drinking to keep his head. Maria did not. She advanced, and he gave as good as he got, all the way to her Porto Romana apartment, which, unfortunately, she shared with a friend. He was forced to do only what was expected of him. Cursing his bad luck, he changed his tactics, stayed for coffee the next morning, nursed her hangover, made breakfast. They exchanged numbers. He phoned her with an invite to coffee the next day. For a few months, he was the perfect boyfriend. It was curious to see how she responded to a respectful and kind man, which was clearly not the sort of person she had dated before. Ironic, really. If she noticed that he always kept a little something back, she did not say. But then they were both guarded people. Then, suddenly, she stopped returning his calls. She disappeared from the papers, and the catwalk as well. Could she have suspected? Surely not. Nevertheless, his quarry had escaped him. Perhaps it was for the best. He was not sure he would have been able to do the deed. Deep cover is never easy. Lies are the most convincing when you half believe them. He had acted the part of boyfriend for too long, complimented her smile, and brushed her hair away from her face tenderly once too often. Months later, he received a call. Maria. In front of the Versace store, beneath the glass dome of the Galleria Vittorio Emanuele II. He arrived at the appointed hour, and a heavily pregnant woman in sunglasses sidled up to him. She removed her glasses, and he saw it was Maria. His heart sank. He had been a reckless fool, assumed a woman like her used contraception. She told him she intended to go away to the countryside to have the baby, who would be cared for by her relatives. She knew it was convenient for neither of their careers, but she was a good Catholic. He laughed at that internally while keeping his face perfectly impassive, and she would not get rid of it. No more could he, he thought, murder an innocent infant. The succubus would have a reprieve until after she had given birth. He agreed. It was inconvenient for them to have a child, but he felt a responsibility. He asked to come and visit her after the little one was born, to ensure they were both well. Maria cried and hugged him, blessing him, saying she was sorry for how she had treated him. He felt the slightest whisper of regret, which he crushed mercilessly beneath the weight of his sense of duty. Then he felt nothing. He felt nothing when he came to the small country hospital and kissed his newborn daughter and her mother. He felt nothing when he swapped some of Maria's medication for an identical tablet containing a poison that would kill her once he was long gone 
making it look like a complication of pregnancy. He went to the funeral, even managed a few tears. The baby was raised by Maria's grandparents. He checked in on her occasionally, watched her life and her career with interest. Told the Zellos he was fine with her knowing who her father was. Apologetically, they told him she was not interested in meeting him. He made no real effort to do so. Perhaps he always feared that she would have inherited the curse. After all, he abandoned both sides of her family. After Maria, he found only one or two other accursed. A newspaper report led him to a kindly old German puppeteer who could fashion living trees into beautiful sculptures, who bled out in his own twisted garden and paled on a thorn bush. He was almost caught behind a circus big top killing a stable hand who had a supernatural bond with her equine charges, but managed to escape between the trailers. After that, he had no further luck. One year, his letter to Father Carlo was returned unopened by the new regimental chaplain, with a note expressing his condolences. Old age had finally taken the priest. Nothing suspicious, just the inevitable end of a long and pious life. He mourned the only person to whom he had been able to reveal at least part of his crusade. He wondered if God had forsaken him, had he done something wrong? A few years later, his mother died of a long illness, and terrible though his grief at that was, it was then that his luck turned. He came home to Naples to be with his father and aunt. His father was still strong and strikingly handsome, even in his old age, but his mind was starting to deteriorate, and he had developed tremors, Parkinson's disease they would later discover. As he sorted through his mother's things with his aunt, he found a large, long-forgotten cardboard box. When he opened it, it was full of Angela's clothes. His mother had never had the heart to get rid of them. He pulled out one of his sister's scarves and the scent she used to wear overwhelmed him with memories. He brought the box downstairs to show his father, who wept openly. He and his aunt went through the box, partly to find out what could be donated, but partly to remember. Something heavy and silver fell out of the breast pocket of one of her shirts. He recognised it immediately. The compass. Angela had proudly showed him how she used it that first night, when she told him about her work for the society. He told his aunt he wanted to keep it. His aunt shrugged and went on folding clothes. Later on, when he was alone, he tried to remember how Angela had said she used the device, casting his memory back over the long years to her conspiratorial smile and her small, darting fingers around the heavy silver. Perhaps, although he was not cursed as she was, there was enough of the devil's magic in his blood to make it work. He reached out with his mind into the needle of the compass, then leaned down and blew on it as she had. The needle vibrated gently and then began to point to his left. The Lord gives, he thought, and he takes away. Now at last, he could take the fight of the accursed. He could wipe them all out, destroy their society, their records, their weapons and devices, and ensure they could never prey on people like his sister again. He licked his lips and realised he was beginning to become dehydrated so he paused to take a sip of water from the canteen at his belt. Then he checked the compass again. It no longer pointed straight ahead of him, but a little to the right. So, they had emerged into the chambers above. He produced a small torch. It would be safe to use a light if they had already gone above. The brickwork had changed, become older and rougher in the way he knew meant he was approaching the foundation of the old theatre and the stairs that led back up. Soon, he would have them.
Funny how you stop noticing the smell of sewer when you're down there. Yeah. I'm really thirsty. I'm going to get some water. Wait. At first, I'm going to drag this wardrobe over the trapdoor. Good idea. Maybe that'll hold him for a bit. Here, you have some. We're down there ages. <sighs> well, what do we do now? They'll find us sooner or later. There's got to be something we can do. What's the point of having superpowers if we're... Ah. Have you got an idea? Yeah, it'll need both of us. Follow me. Hey! You're the opera singer. Bellatra! Mr. Wilton. You and Mix McIntyre have led me for quite a dance. I am impressed. But the dances have finished, and now I will kill you both. Why though? What do we ever do to you? La maledizione, Mr. Wilton. The curse. Your power comes from the devil, and I am God's instrument. Once I have ended you, I will burn this place down, and that will be the end of the pantalones. Is there anything I can say to change your mind? Mr. Wilton, I am not a villain from a movie who you can trick or stall. I feel you looking inside my hateful jokes, but the joke is on you, because I have ceased to find anything funny long ago. It was worth a shot. You cannot hide from the compass, Mr. Wilton. Pietro Bellatro peered into the darkness at the end of the hallway. Something high up on the stairs had moved. Had one of them climbed up there? It was a wise move. They would be able to see him coming more easily. He stepped closer and something else moved at eye level. What was going on? He moved forward cautiously. A stone foot landed on the marble floor of the hallway. Pietro's eyes widened as the two huge statues, the gladiator and the legionary, stepped out of their alcoves and stood to attention. They both saluted someone up on the stairs. Then, both their heads ground around to face him, and their left knees lifted in unison as they began to march towards him. <laughs> Bravo! The funeral of Dr. Veronica Harrington was not a small one. At her request, delivered by her solicitor and a distant relative who was her next of kin, it was held at the Clown's Church, Holy Trinity in Dalston. It was attended by a significant number of hospital colleagues, former patients, clowns and performers of all kinds. Joe and Jen sat solemnly in the second row from the back, 
The circumstances of Dr. Harrington's death and that of Pietro Bellatra, the famous baritone, had been complicated to deal with. One stabbed, one crushed. Fortunately, the society had contacts who specialised in dealing with this sort of thing. Bellatra's mortal remains had been disposed of. He would need to be missing, presumed dead. Veronica's death was an unfortunate workplace accident. The wake, held in the back room of the church, was solemn and even more busy. Veronica had funded an impressive spread. More staff from the hospital showed up after their shifts were over. Apparently there would be wing, or a ward, or possibly a playroom at the hospital named after her, and her estate would be funding charitable grants for several years of clown care. Jen commiserated with relatives and hospital staff that they recognised. Yes, it was so sad. She was such a wonderful person, deeply missed. Jen did not like being in sad places. They felt out of their element in a place where laughter was frowned upon, and wondered when there would be a chance to slip away. They had also stuffed their pockets with macaroons and tiny cupcakes for later. It was what Dr. Harrington would have wanted, they thought. They wanted to find Joe before they left there. After a bit of hunting, she spotted him, talking to a woman she remembered was a ward sister at the hospital, and asked if she could speak to him outside. Presently, he joined her on the pavement outside the church, beneath some trees. You're right, Jen. I'm not great. I don't like funerals. Does anyone? Funeral directors? I don't know. I'm going to go, but before I do, I wanted to give you something. Oh? Oh. I carved him myself. The first recorded show in England featuring the character we now know as Mr. Punch was reported by the illustrious diarist and barrier of Parmesan cheese, Samuel Pepys, in May 1662. The restoration of the English monarchy after the austerity of Oliver Cromwell had encouraged artists and actors from all over Europe to return to the British Isles. One of these was the puppeteer Pietro Gimonte, better known as Signor Bologna, after his place of origin. His puppet was named Punchinello and was a marionette. In the centuries since Pepys wrote his diaries, Punchinello evolved into Mr. Punch. The expense of producing marionettes in the later 18th century necessitated his current form as a glove puppet. The Mr. Punch that Jen had made for Joe was beautifully carved, sanded and painted, and dressed in a hand-stitched outfit of red, yellow and blue. He turned it over in his big hands, admiring the bright red cheeks and the preposterously large nose. You said your last one got stolen. I made you a new one. So well made. Better than any of my old ones. Jen. This is a goodbye present. Well, with Dr. H gone, is there any point in us carrying on? I did wonder. But then I thought, what would she want us to do? They looked around them, at the church full of people, all of whose lives Dr. Harrington had touched, and made better in one way or another. She'd want us to carry on, use the compass to find people's presence, rebuild. I mean, Weird supernatural stuff isn't going to stop happening just because we quit. Someone's got to deal with it. Yeah. Are you in? Yeah. One condition, though. What? There's all that money, isn't there? To run the place. Pay performers. Yeah. We're redecorating. Yeah. Alright. This has been the final episode of the Pantaloon Society, a Cytochrome Here production by Lou Sutcliffe, 
hey m pronouns is repeated under a creative commons attribution 4.0 international license this episode used sounds from freesound.org for full accreditation content warnings and transcripts please see the show notes farewell dear audience and thank you so much for listening